This morning we're going to be looking at John 1. So if you want to turn there, if you have a Bible. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3, and then verse 14 as well. And I believe the plan next week is to fill in the, the middle there, the beginning of the Gospel of John. So I'll be reading John 1, 1 through 3, and then 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give us grace to understand uh, the amazing realities of what Scott just read, uh, that your Holy Spirit uh, reveals to us through John. God, I pray that you humble us this morning that we might worship you, that we might treasure Christ above all else. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is the reason for the season, is a little jingle. I heard from my earliest memories, frustrated Christian parents, frustrated Christian church members, almost angrily walking around saying, Jesus is the reason for the season. And yet... In saying that, those saying that knew something their lost neighbors maybe didn't know. But I wonder, as they were saying those words, if they were even grasping what Christmas is about, what it means that a baby is born that was God. How much awe was in that little jingle. Jesus is the reason for the season. This morning, I can tell you that weak-minded, 
half-hearted people will struggle with the topic this morning. Because it's so beyond our capacities of intellect, so beyond our strength of emotion and will and experience to comprehend the glories of what Scott just read. And we just heard it as though, I've heard that a hundred times. So, I invite you this morning to struggle with me in childlike wonder and humility as we seek to grasp something of the glories of the Incarnation. God taking on human flesh. So as we begin, I want us to feel the need for Christmas. The need for the Incarnation. If you were to read the Old Testament... You would learn a lot of things about God. You would see a lot of hope being spoken through the prophets. And yet you would be left with these moments of tension, not knowing how to reconcile what God is saying. For example, when Moses pleaded with God that God would reveal His glory to him, that He would pass His glory in front of him, the Lord spoke out and gave this self-revealing statement about what He is like and who He is. And here's what He says. This is Exodus 34, uh, starting in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, patient love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. We're all good up to that point, right? But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And you read that and you say, you're who? You're a God of steadfast love and patience and grace? What is grace? Grace is God willing to forgive us and bless us abundantly in spite of the fact we don't deserve to be treated so well. He gives us what we don't deserve. Grace. And yet, he says, God is gracious, but He'll by no means pardon the guilty or clear the guilty. You're with me? So who are you? How can you be both at the same time? And so believers in the Old Testament were hanging on to their hope to be saved by grace. The true believers. God said He was, but then there's this tension because 
He's not going to clear the guilty. And so you have Job, whom the Scripture tells us is the most godly man on the face of the earth. And yet, even though he's the most godly man on the face of the earth, Job knows he's in trouble. Here's what he says in Job 9, 28. I've become afraid of all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. I'm just telling you here, there's no one better than Job here. There's, there's no one more godly than Job. And Job just says, you won't hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you'll still plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. He's saying if I wash with the best soap possible, the, clear, the cleanest water, yet when I put my clothes on, I'm still so filthy in his iniquity and sin that even his clothes say, get me off. Get, I don't want to touch you. I abhor you. And then he reasons this way. He says, for he being God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Job saying, I'm in big trouble because I can't reason with God in my sin. There's no one that stands between us that can lay a hand on God, lay a hand on man, and reconcile the relationship. This is the Old Testament tension. And yet Job even had hope that one day he would stand on this earth in his flesh with his Redeemer. But do you see the tension he would have felt with what God had revealed thus far. Well, let's look at our text and see how God solves that tension. It's a one-command sermon. Wonder and worship because Jesus is the Word become flesh. Wonder and worship. And there's two points. We're going to look at the Word, and then we're going to look at what it means that the Word becomes flesh. Verse 1 of John 1 is one of the most incredible demonstrations of the Holy Spirit's ability to take grand, infinite truths and put them in one sentence with two commas and three points, three statements. It, you read it so fast. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's dive into that verse. In the beginning. If I was going to say, let's play a game. I'm going to start a Bible verse, and you finish it, and I said, in the beginning, 
and stopped, you would be in a dilemma because you, it might be what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John is purposely making us think back to Genesis 1. Here's how Genesis 1, the first three verses of Genesis start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. Already the Trinity in those three verses is on display as we'll see in a moment. But in the beginning was the Word. The first question is this, what's the Word? Well, when John penned this, there was two ideas of the Word. There's the Greek idea of what the Word is, and there's the Jewish idea of what the Word is. And then the Holy Spirit takes this Word with these meanings and brings them together and gives us the truth uh, about who Christ is. The Greeks spoke of the word or logos in the Greek as an impersonal or abstract principle of reason and order in the world. They knew that there was an ordering word in the universe. They could see design. They could see wisdom. And there was this impersonal logos out there. For the Jew, or for an Israelite, the word for them was uh, presented in the Old Testament as God's divine revelation of himself and his power on display, especially in creation. And God said, let there be light. He spoke the word and there was light. And so we're told that in the beginning was the Word. All wisdom and order is bound up in the Word. Colossians 2.2 says this of Jesus. Paul is praying that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the word Christ himself is bound up all wisdom and knowledge. There is no wisdom outside of Christ. There is no knowledge outside of Christ. Bringing this Greek idea into personal form. And then in Hebrews 1.1, we see Jesus embody what the Jews would expect the Word to embody. 
Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the exact revelation of God himself. He's the power that created the world and he upholds the universe at the same time. This is the word. All four of these ideas come together. Reason, order, revelation of God and creative power all come together in this word that John is talking about. And the first thing he says, the first line, there's three statements about the word in verse one. The first one is, is this, in the beginning was the word. Was. This is in the imperfect tense, which reinforces the eternal pre-existence of the word. It was always continually there in the beginning. What's the beginning? The beginning is that creation, and this word already was. Continually already was. The first thing we learn about the word is that he's eternal. He's pre-existing. At the beginning, he already was there. Jesus eternally existed before time, before anything was created. That truth alone proves definitively that Jesus Christ is God because only God eternally existed before time. We're only on the first element of the first verse, the first description of the word. We see that he eternally existed. Second, we see that the word was with God. Jesus eternally existed in perfect fellowship and unity with God. The Word was with God. One writer writes, the English translation does not bring out the full richness of the Greek expression theon. The picture of two personal beings facing one another, engaging in intelligent discourse. The Word is personified. The Word is personally towards God. Eternally. He's eternally existing. He's facing God, the picture is an intellectual, a real personal relationship with God. The Word was toward Him. The Word was in personal towardness towards God. With God for all eternity. 
A very similar thing is in 1 John 1, 1 and verse 2. Listen, li- listen to how he begins the letter of 1 John. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, which was towards the Father, literally in the Greek, and was made manifest to us. The Word eternally existed, and He's personified. Who is He? He's the Word. He has a relationship with God, the Father. And we know in the Trinity with God, the Holy Spirit. Right there in those first three verses of Genesis 1, you have God there in the beginning. You have the Spirit of God hovering over the deep. And you have God speaking, you have the Word creating light in those first three verses of Genesis. You have the Trinity. Three distinct persons in one perfect unity. Three distinct persons, one substance. One God, all of the same substance, in perfect unity, yet distinct persons that have a relationship with each other. God is family and has been family forever. So when God created family, He created family in His own image. And then we get to the third statement. The Word was God. The Word was God. That simple statement is maybe the most attacked verse in all the Bible because it's the clearest and most definitive verse in the Bible probably that speaks to Jesus Christ being God. He's not a created being like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. He's not a created being like the Mormons say, an angel a powerful angel that God shared power with? No, He eternally existed and He is God. We're not going to go through the Greek of this, but there is no clearer way John could have told us that Jesus Christ is God. If He would have wrote it any other way than He wrote it, the Trinity would be harmed and heresy would uh, come forth. It's a simple statement. The Word is God. But there's distinction. He's not the Father. The Word isn't the Father. They're of one substance, but distinct persons. And we see in just this first verse that Jesus, the Word, eternally existed as a distinct person in the Godhead who is God. In John 5.17, 
Jesus was talking with the Pharisees and he said, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The Pharisees understood what Jesus was claiming of himself. Claiming to be God's son and God being his father, no Jew would have claimed God as as his father. But here Jesus is claiming God as his father and making himself equal to God. And that's why they were seeking to kill kill him. They thought it was blasphemy, and obviously it would have been if he wasn't God. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. He, the person of the Word, the Word was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Precise words of important doctrine. Some say Jesus is the first created being whom then God created everything through. Heresy. Nothing was created that wasn't created through Him. And we've already seen He's eternally existed before anything was created. He says it in the positive, and in just in case we're going to miss it, he says it in the negative. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Word is the Creator. In Genesis 1.26, Speaking of God creating man, here's what it says. Then God said, let us make God in our image. In Genesis 1, us, the Trinity, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, were created in the image of God. By the word. New Testament makes this clear. Colossians 1.16. Speaking of Christ. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones and dominions. Or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him. And for him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In Genesis 1.14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be signs, or let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. I just want to take a minute to help us think about. So, Jesus created the stars. That's what I just read. 
The word created the stars. So I said we were going to have a little science in this sermon. And I lied. I actually am going to use PowerPoint one more time. Show you two pictures. (laughs) But I just want to help you. When we say Jesus is the reason for the season, I want it to mean something to you. What are we looking at? The Lagoon Nebula, seen from the Hubble telescope. Psalm 19.1 says this, the heavens, lowercase h, meaning the stars, the universe, declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now, scientists, many of them, will reject Christianity on the basis of how big the universe is. And they say God would have, God would have wasted so much space unless God created the universe to teach us about his glory. Now, here's where you got to use your brain and your heart. The Milky Way galaxy, ready for this statement, is 100,000 light years across. This is our galaxy that we live in. If you go to the next picture, here's an example of a spiral galaxy. Spiral galaxy M100. That's another galaxy that's a spiral galaxy. You can just leave that picture up for the rest of the sermon. But just do some math with me for a minute. Because I said that statement, no one's jaws dropped. And no one went, no way. You got to be kidding me. And the reason why is the truth is beyond what we can comprehend. What is a light year? Because I just told you that our Milky Way, our one galaxy is 100,000 light years across. And the Andromeda galaxy, which is the closest galaxy to us, is 2.0 million light years away. What's a light year? A light year is not about time, but it's about distance. It's a way to measure long distances. So to give you an idea, scientists know how fast light travels. If I were to flash a flashlight at you, it would come at you at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. That's how fast light travels, 186,000 miles per second. To give you an idea of that, if you were to travel around the earth at that speed, you could wrap around the earth in one second seven and a half times. In one second, light travels around the earth seven and a half times in one second. The moon is 240,000 miles away, which means light travels from the earth to the moon in 1.3 seconds. That's how fast light travels. Now stay with me, all right? 
we talked about a light second, 186,000 miles a second. So now let's talk about a light minute. If you travel at the speed of light, you will travel 11 million miles. If you travel at the speed of light for one minute, 11 million miles. The sun is 93 million miles away. So it takes sunlight 8.3 minutes to get to earth. The sun is 93 million miles away and it gets here in 8.3 seconds, minutes. Now let's talk about a light hour. In a light hour, you can travel 670 million miles. Our solar system is 5.6 billion miles across which would take eight hours and four minutes to travel across at the speed of light. A light year, you ready for this? In a light year, you'll travel six trillion miles. Come on. In one light year, you're going to go six trillion miles. In our one galaxy, is a hundred thousand light years across? Give me a break. What about the next closest galaxy? 2.2 million light years away. So if you're going 186,000 miles an hour and you go that fast for 2.2 million miles, you'll get to the first galaxy in space. Now, let me just add this into it. Every galaxy, our galaxy has about 4 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. 4 billion stars. Our sun is an average size star, and you could fit, if you imagine our star is like a sphere, like a gumball machine, you can fit 1.3 million Earths inside our star. You with me? There's 4 billion stars, scientists estimate, in the Milky Way galaxy, our one galaxy. And as I was reading, I had to chuckle because I ran across an article that NASA put out in 2000, October 13, 2016 by Carl Heil, writing for NASA. The headline of the article is, Hubble reveals observable universe contains 10 times more galaxies than previously thought. And here's what he wrote. The universe suddenly looks a lot more crowded thanks to a deep sky census assembled from surveys taken by NASA's Hubble Space Telescope and other observa observatories. Astronomers came to the surprising conclusion that there are at least 10 times more galaxies in the observable universe than previously thought. Well, how many did they think there was? 200 billion is what they previously thought. The heavens declare the glory of God. And in one verse, Genesis 1.14, we saw that Jesus, 
created. All that. And we only looked at one part of his creation. Size. Of, we didn't talk about design. We didn't talk about beauty. We didn't talk about the infinite wisdom bound up in Christ. Jesus is the reason for the season though. You know. Cute little baby born in Bethlehem. Do we know? Do we comprehend Christmas? What it means that Christ is creator. All things were created through him. C.S. Lewis, one of his most quoted quotes he ever uh, spoke or, or wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, said this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. All of us here in this room can be more entertained by the things of this world than by Christ, which is absolutely ludicrous and insane. In a moment of a second, he speaks and things that were not are created. He's our creator. What's the great sin of Romans 1? We begin to worship the creature rather than the creator. That is insane. And yet, in this simple verse, verse 3, we're told all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Isn't that amazing? See, see what I mean? It takes, it takes a large-hearted child of wonder to grasp the Bible. That's what I love about the Bible. If you just read it and you don't stop and go to the Hubble telescope site and start looking at pictures, well, then you'll just say, Jesus is the reason for the season. And you won't with awe want to show whoever you're talking to or going to say that line to what it means that Jesus is God, Creator. So we're going to skip verses 4 all the way through 13. We're going to come back to them next week. And we're going to go all the way to verse 14 where it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if you thought what I was saying was mind-blowing about distances of our galaxies, of our one galaxy, let alone 
the billions of galaxies that have billions of stars that are so big we can't even comprehend them. If that amazed you, this has to amaze you more. That God who created that with all wisdom and order and power and divine revelation became a human being in the form of a baby. We can't comprehend such power and wisdom and bigness coming into such a small, humble package. So that they call him Emmanuel, God with us. Why would he do that? Because God said, I forgive iniquity. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm merciful. I won't clear the guilty. Here's how. I'm going to send my son, Jesus. He's God. He's infinite. And he's going to be born so that he can die. He's coming to be a substitute. So that when my son is on that cross, I can cry out, look at my grace. And I can cry out, look at my justice. Every sin for whoever was forgiven was not shuffled under the rug, but was punished on the cross. God's wrath was poured out on his own son so that we can understand Exodus 34. At the cross, God says, I'm just. I punish sin and there's hope for sinners. And your only hope in this world, you will face God. And he is the God who I just begin to, you know, people say, well, when I face God, I'm going to tell him. You won't be saying a whole lot. When you see him in all of his glory. In fact, you'll know you're unworthy. And your only hope on that day is if somehow you can be sinless and perfectly righteous. And that's possible. Not because you can become those things on your own but because Jesus came to take away your sin and give you his perfect righteousness. Now, I just want to point out a couple things in closing. If Jesus is not the God-man, he can't forgive you for your sins. If he's not 100% God, he can't forgive your sins because you sinned against an eternal God which demands eternal punishment. So you need an eternal substitute. We need the God-man. And if he's only 50% God, then he can only forgive us for 50% of our offense against God. And if he's 50% man, then he can only redeem a half a man. We need someone that's 100% God and 100% man to be the Lamb of God, to be the one that Job was looking to by faith. He said, God is not a man that we can reason with Him. 
Oh, he's not, huh? Now he is. When Christ was born, God sent his mediator to say, here's how you can be reconciled to God. When you trust in the mediator by faith, your sins are forgiven. You become a child of God. Jesus' perfect life is given to you as a gift. Isn't that amazing? So that you can face God without fear. Without fear of judgment. Not because you were good enough, but because Christ was the perfect sacrifice. The perfect substitute. He can only mediate because He is the God-man. This union gives us, gives infinite value to Jesus' righteousness. His righteousness is infinite value. It gives infinite value to His atoning blood. Is His blood good enough to forgive my sin against an eternal God? His blood is infinite. Listen, listen to this. <laughs> when Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 28, he says this. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Listen, which he obtained with his own blood. You want to know what that means? Jesus is God. The Bible says when Jesus died on the cross, that was God's own blood. That's how you can know that his infinite, the infinite value of Christ's blood is enough to forgive you. Now, we're out of time. We haven't even scratched the surface of John 1. But I hope you're wondering, like a child wonders, when he or she sees something amazing. And I pray that you worship Christ Listen to me. Listen to me. Do you value Jesus over an affair you might be looking at having? Over a business you might be trying to build? Over alcohol? Over some hobby? Here's the thing. What good do those things do you when you stand before the God of the universe? All things important come into picture when we remember that we're created and we'll face our God again. And if you live like that, you'll value Christ above all else. You'll say, that's my hope. And by the way, there's nothing more exciting than opening the pages of Scripture because that Hubble telescope tells me that it's crying out about the glory of my God. What an amazing way. Let us be people who treasure Christ, who are amazed at His love for us, at His humility to take on flesh, to die in our place. I pray that you cling to Him by faith. Father, everyone in this room can become a child of God, all their sins washed away, past, present, and future by simply realizing their only hope is in Christ and clinging to Him by faith. God, I pray they would turn away from that which cannot satisfy their souls. 
Father, help us not to be amazed by things that aren't nearly as amazing as Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.